0: Chapter Five of the Birth of Tragedy, by Friedrich Nietzsche. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five. We now approach the real purpose of our investigation, which aims at acquiring a knowledge of the Dionyso Apollonian genius and his artwork, or at least an anticipatory understanding of the mystery of the aforesaid union here we shall ask first of all where that new germ which subsequently developed into tragedy and dramatic dithyram first makes itself perceptible in the hellenic world the ancients themselves supply the answer in symbolic form when they place homer and archilochus as the forefathers and torch-bearers of greek poetry side by side on gems sculptures etc in the sure conviction that only these two thoroughly original compeers from whom a stream of fire flows over the whole of greek posterity should be taken into consideration homer the aged dreamer sunk in himself the type of the apollonian naive artist beholds now with astonishment the impassioned genius of the warlike votary of the muses archilochus violently tossed to and fro on the billows of existence and modern aesthetics could only add by way of interpretation that here the objective artist is confronted by the first subjective artist but this interpretation is of little service to us because we know the subjective artist only as the poor artist and in every type and elevation of art we demand specially and first of all the conquest of the subjective the redemption from the ego and the cessation of every individual will and desire indeed we find it impossible to believe in any truly artistic production however insignificant without objectivity without pure interestedless contemplation hence our aesthetics must first solve the problem as to how the lyrist is possible as an artist he who according to the experience of all ages continually says i and sings off to us the entire chromatic scale of his passions and desires this very archilochus appalls us alongside of homer by his cries of hatred and scorn by the drunken outbursts of his desire he is not just he then who has been called the first subjective artist the non artist proper but whence then the reverence which was shown to him the poet in very remarkable utterances by the delphic oracle itself the focus of objective art Schiller has enlightened us concerning his poetic procedure by a psychological observation inexplicable to himself, yet not apparently open to any objection. He acknowledges that as the preparatory state to the act of poetizing, he had not perhaps before him, or within him, a series of pictures with coordinate causalities of thoughts, but rather a musical mood the perception with me is at first without a clear and definite object this forms itself later a certain musical mood of mine precedes and only after this does the poetical ideal follow with me add to this the most important phenomenon of all ancient lyric poetry the union regarded everywhere as natural of the lyrist with the musician their very identity indeed compared with which our modern lyric poetry is like the statue of a god without a head and we may now on the basis of our metaphysics of aesthetics set forth above interpret the lyrics to ourselves as follows as dionysian artist he is in the first place become altogether one with the primordial unity its pain and contradiction and he produces the copy of this primordial unity as music granting that music has been correctly termed a repetition and a recast of the world but now under the apollonian dream inspiration this music again becomes visible to him as in a symbolic dream picture the formless and intangible reflection of the primordial pain in music with its redemption in appearance then generates a second mirroring as a concrete symbol or example the artist has already surrendered his subjectivity in the dionysian process the picture which now shows to him his oneness with the heart of the world is a dream scene which embodies the primordial contradiction and primordial pain together with the primordial joy of appearance the eye of the lyrist sounds therefore from the abyss of being its subjectivity in the sense of the modern esthetes is a fiction when archilochus the first lyrist of the greeks makes known both his mad love and his contempt to the daughters of lycambes it is not his passion which dances before us in orgiastic frenzy we see dionysus and the menads we see the drunken reveller archilochus sunk down to sleep as euripides depicts it in the bacchae the sleep on the high alpine pasture in the noonday sun and now apollo approaches and touches him with the laurel the Dionyso musical enchantment of the sleeper now emits as it were picture sparks lyrical poems which in their highest development are called tragedies and dramatic dithyrams the plastic artist as also the epic poet who is related to him is sunk in the pure contemplation of pictures the dionysian musician is without any picture himself just primordial pain and the primordial re-echoing thereof the lyric genius is conscious of a world of pictures and symbols growing out of the state of mystical self-abnegation and oneness which has a colouring causality and velocity quite different from that of the world of the plastic artist and epic poet while the latter lives in these pictures and only in them with joyful satisfaction and never grows tired of contemplating them with love even in their minutest characters while even the picture of the angry achilles is to him but a picture the angry expression of which he enjoys with the dream joy in appearance so that by this mirror of appearance he is guarded against being unified and blending with his figures the pictures of the lyrist on the other hand are nothing but his very self and as it were only different projections of himself on account of which he as the moving centre of this world is entitled to say i only of course this self is not the same as that of the waking empirically real man but the only verily existent and eternal self resting at the basis of things by means of the images whereof the lyric genius sees through even to this basis of things now let us suppose that he beholds himself also among these images as non genius that is his subject the whole throng of subjective passions and impulses of the will directed to a definite object which appears real to him if now it seems as if the lyric genius and the allied non genius were one and as if the former spoke that little word i of his own accord this appearance will no longer be able to lead us astray as it certainly led those astray who designated the lyrist as the subjective poet in truth the passionately inflamed loving and hating man is but a vision of the genius who by this time is no longer archilochus but a genius of the world who expresses his primordial pain symbolically in the figure of the man archilochus. while the subjectively willing and desiring man archilochus can never at any time be a poet it is by no means necessary however that the lyrist should see nothing but the phenomenon of the man archilochus before him as a reflection of eternal being and tragedy shows how far the visionary world of the lyrist may depart from this phenomenon to which of course it is most intimately related schopenhauer who did not shut his eyes to the difficulty presented by the lyrist in the philosophical contemplation of art thought he had found a way out of it on which however i cannot accompany him while he alone in his profound metaphysics of music Held in his hands, the means whereby this difficulty could be definitely removed, as I believe I have removed it here, in his spirit and to his honor. In contrast to our view, he describes the peculiar nature of song as follows: Welt aus villa und vorstelung," one to ninety-five. It is the subject of the will, that is, his own volition, which fills the consciousness of the singer, often as an unbound and satisfied desire joy but still more often as a restricted desire grief always as an emotion a passion or an agitated frame of mind besides this however and along with it by the sight of surrounding nature the singer becomes conscious of himself as the subject of pure willless knowing the unbroken blissful peace of which now appears in contrast to the stress of desire which is always restricted and always needy The feeling of this contrast this alternation is really what the song as a whole expresses and what principally constitutes the lyrical state of mind in it pure knowing comes to us as it were to deliver us from desire and the stress thereof we follow but only for an instant for desire the remembrance of our personal ends tears us anew from peaceful contemplation yet ever again the next beautiful surrounding in which the pure willless knowledge presents itself to us allures us away from desire therefore in song and in the lyrical mood desire the personal interest of the ends and the pure perception of the surrounding which presents itself are wonderfully mingled with each other connections between them are sought for and imagined the subjective disposition the affection of the will imparts its own hue to the contemplated surrounding and conversely the surroundings communicate the reflex of their color to the will the true song is the expression of the whole of this mingled and divided state of mind who could fail to see in this description that lyric poetry is here characterized as an imperfectly attained art which seldom and only as it were in leaps arrives at its goal indeed as a semi-art the essence of which is said to consist in this that desire and pure contemplation that is the unesthetic and the aesthetic condition are wonderfully mingled with each other we maintain rather that this entire antithesis according to which as according to some standard of value schopenhauer too still classifies the arts the antithesis between the subjective and the objective is quite out of place in aesthetics inasmuch as the subject that is the desiring individual who furthers his own egoistic ends can be conceived only as the adversary not as the origin of art in so far as the subject is the artist however he has already been released from his individual will and has become as it were the medium through which the one verily existent subject celebrates his redemption in appearance for this one thing must above all be clear to us to our humiliation and exaltation that the entire comedy of art is not at all performed say for our betterment and culture and that we are just as little the true authors of this art world rather we may assume with regard to ourselves that its true author uses us as pictures and artistic projections and that we have our highest dignity and our significance as works of art for only as an aesthetic phenomenon is existence and the world eternally justified while of course our consciousness of this our specific significance hardly differs from the kind of consciousness which the soldiers painted on canvas have of the battle represented thereon hence all our knowledge of art is at bottom quite illusory because as knowing persons we are not one and identical with the being who as the sole author and spectator of this comedy of art prepares a perpetual entertainment for himself only in so far as the genius in the act of artistic production coalesces with this primordial artist of the world does he get a glimpse of the eternal essence of art For in this state he is in a marvellous manner like the weird picture of the fairy tale which can at will turn its eyes and behold itself he is now at once subject and object at once poet actor and spectator chapter five